on this episode of Dig Me Out 80s. Jay, we're back again with another 80s episode of Dig Me Out on Patreon. Thanks to our patrons who help make these episodes happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. An 80s episode, Jay. This is a, well, I guess this is kind of a um, solemn episode. It wasn't intended to be. Uh, when we put this poll up, originally it, it went up at the beginning of October. The four uh, b- uh, albums we had were Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche, Rising Force by Yingwei Malmsteen, Electric by The Cult, and Fair Warning by Van Halen. And during the course of the voting period, sadly, Eddie Van Halen passed away. And Van Halen ended up winning 56% over the Colt with 33%, Yingwei with 11 Operation Mindcrime, Zippo in that poll, which I think does not represent the quality of that record, but we'll get to it at a future time. Um, so this is going to be a little bit more than just a revisitation, I think, of, of Fair Warning by Van Halen. Um, I think I'd like to start with introducing our guests because we have some old friends who have come back from previous episodes. They're also huge Van Halen fans, so we knew we had to have some other voices on this episode, much like we did when we did Van Halen in the 90s. We had a, a bunch of knowledgeable guests. Um, but joining us, previous guests uh, from such episodes as Failure and then Failure Again, uh, Keith Jenkins. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. Um, and then also, uh, Billy Peak is back. Billy, when you joined us for the Tragically Hip episode, was that just after Gord Downey announced he had cancer? Yeah, no, it was, ap- it was like two days after. It was the day after his final concert. Oh, that's um, right. So I, it just hit me while you were doing the intros. You're like, well, you only bring me on when I'm going to talk about something real sad about one of our heroes. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about sorry, that. To like to lament things, but that's all right. We, we can never do a Rolling Stones episode because we will kill somebody from that band if we do an episode on the Rolling Stones. Um, tell me, each of you, let's go around. Tell me your most emotionally uh, uh, devastating hit memory of Eddie Van Halen. What's going to make you cry on video right now? Let's go. Keith, when you were learning, when you picked up a guitar, when you picked up a Guitar World magazine in in 1995 and started learning eruption, you know the musical part of this emotionally for me is easy because I never, you know, it's he is the reason I started playing guitar. He's the reason I wanted to be in a band. But I will say that like I never in a million years could have ever. I couldn't play like that when I was you know 14, 15 years old. I, I can't play like that now. But 
what I think the emotional part of it that got me when I, when I, when I heard the news, it's funny because the first two people I thought of are two, they're two people that are on this thing and, and Jason and Billy. So, I mean, I'm in sixth grade and in homeroom and there's a kid sitting behind me and his name's Jay Ziak. And we start talking about Van Halen. And I mean, honest to God, I don't remember anything else that we ever talked about other than Van Halen when we first met. <laughs> the first time I ever watched 5150 live without a net was over at Jay's house. And like, I mean, it's, it's a lifetime friendship. I mean, I don't, I don't have many friendships that have probably lasted as long as Jason's or, or goes deep. We've played music together. I've, I'm friends with all of you guys kind of in, in sort of a family tree of that. And, you know, that all stemmed from a conversation about Van Halen and a mutual love. I mean, I went over the first time we were at his house, he had a damn drum set that had the racing stripes on it. That's right. That's I mean, right. oh my God. Billy Peak, Billy Peak and I, you know, the Gary Sharon album, which, you know, a lot of people criticize. Billy Peak and I drove to Detroit um, from Bowling Green and, uh, had a blast. Creed opened up. The god awful band Creed opened up for Van Halen, but but honestly, like for me, that show was one of the. I, I only saw Van Halen a few times, um, at least back then, and that was one of the funnest shows because we kind of got a little bit of everything. You know, you got some of the, uh, you got a lot of the raw stuff that the that Van Halen hadn't played in years because of Sammy and then you got the good some of the good Sammy stuff and then you got like humans being which I don't think had ever been played live so it was just like I mean there's just so many moments that like you know and then we drove back to Bowling Green after and and whatever but it's just like you know meeting Billy in college it's like you know Van Halen was kind of a, a common thread with us because you know that was the the mid nineties and, and Van Halen wasn't even really doing a whole lot of anything at that point in time. So, um, you know, it's, I think that's the emotional part for me is, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be sitting here on a podcast talking about music if it wasn't for Van Halen, because I just like, honestly, it, it set a path in my life that, you know, I'm grateful for and will never change is whether I, you know, ever became as accomplished as a guitarist as Eddie Van Halen or, you know, wrote these amazing songs is irrelevant, but it's like, I wouldn't have probably done the things I did and became friends with the people that I became friends with if it hadn't been for that. So that's the emotional part of it for me. All the guitar innovation stuff and, you know, people can say, I'm sure nobody's going to really argue over that. Um, but, you know, it's, you can't, you can't really replace the, 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 the friendships and sort of the, the path that your life takes because of someone like this. So. Billy, what about yeah, they, for you? What, when was your yeah. um, a first encounter with Van Halen as a kid? Uh, yeah, um, as a kid, uh, the first record I heard was Diver Down, uh, actually. Um, and uh, a, a family friend, their oldest son, was probably five or six years older than me. And, and he uh, played Big Pat Phyllis' Sweet William Now for me. He was like, um, and I, I just loved it. We were at the house and we were listening to the cassette. And um you know, I loved it. And I, t I took it home and that, you know, that's, that's the record that everybody criticizes because it's like half covers. But when you're, when you're, you know, six going on seven years old and um, it's real accessible because it had covers that I already knew. Plus it had a couple of fun songs. Plus the originals on that might be some of the best. Group. But so that summer, I just, I just, I remember being, uh, you know, shirtless on my BMX bike 
riding in a circle around the boombox, just listening to to Diver Down and memorizing all those songs, and then going and getting. And then the next thing I got was you know like a Maxell dub on a ninety minute of Van Halen one and two, and then I, I bought Women and Children first. Uh, and, and fair warning on the same cassette. It was like a double cassette, one side for each record at Hills Department Store. So that was like six records or five records in a matter of five or six months, the summer of, of 83. So by the time uh, 1984 came out, I was pretty ready. And, um, but you know, like what Keith was saying, it's, um, I, my daughter is six years old and, and uh, shortly after finding out that um, Eddie had died, you know, she she popped in on me and I was, in the bathroom on the toilet crying reading my phone and she was like what, what what's happening and uh and so uh but i was trying to explain to a six-year-old girl why um you know van halen means so much to me and it said you know i can i can't count there's nothing else that's given me joy since i was seven years old like uh, like a lot of things have given me joy my friends and my family and my you know you know so many things and playing music and writing music but like it's been a, it was a, it's a 37 year run where, you know, I don't purposely put on Van Halen a ton um, because I've just played it to, in, to the point or, or unless I'm going down YouTube rabbit holes, or whatever, but like, I, there's never a moment in my life where I don't hear it and stop and just like take it in because, you know, it's just because it brings so much joy. And that, like, that's the one thing that kept, I kept thinking about with Ed is that uh, watching him play guitar, yeah, like Keith said, you know, actually, Van Halen's the reason I quit playing guitar for a short bit because I went to the the my music teacher and I was like, uh, can, "Can I? Can you teach me Panama?" And he was like, "You no? How about Eleanor Rigby?" And I was like, "No, I want to learn Panama." And like, I couldn't do it. He, I was, and 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 so I, I stopped playing till like late in high school or early in college when I was like, "Well, I'm I can't play sports anymore. I'm like, how am I going to be girls? I got to do something." And uh, and uh, so I got back into playing guitar, but by that point. Fortunately for me, you know, uh, the, the simplification of uh, big, big power chords were, were back in vogue. So, but uh, yeah, just the joy of it all and, you know, listening to the records and just, you know, it's not all Ed, but there's, a, there's so much with Ed. You just, we'll talk about, I'm sure with this record, the emotion, the landscape that he builds with the sound of his guitar, this record, this record is just like, but he does that on all of them and it just, it, it, it had to be a, a great interaction for he and Dave where and, and Dave would hear what Eddie was doing because it, it just paints a picture with his music. That's incredible. And, and, and fair warning is, is a dark ass painting. Right. But like it, it just so much emotion and so much comes from the music that it's, it's hard to describe. And I, I feel like a real weirdo talking to anybody, but probably this room, uh, about uh, how much emotion it fills me with, but it's just, you know, it's special stuff to me. Jay, was your older brothers the, your conduit to finding Van Halen or did you find that on your own? Um, yeah, sort of. And so my earliest memory is actually somehow getting a Van Halen 1984 t-shirt. Um, so it was the one that had the, the photo that's on the back, they turned that into a t-shirt. It was like the worst renderings ever of them. <laughs> they look like goblins or something. But I just remember like 1984 was huge. Like, and I thought David Lee Roth was Van Halen. I thought yeah. that was his name. <laughs> but like, you know, I love that album and those songs. 
Um, I probably got the t-shirt from my brother or one of his friends because I didn't go to a concert. And then he had a a, a buddy. So I played guitar um, then very much like Billy and Keith, like taking lessons from whatever the local guitar guy. And I had a Fender Jaguar, which at the time was like the most uncool guitar right. you could ever have. And uh, my brother's friend had, I don't, I don't know what it was, but it looked like the Frankenstein guitar. It was probably whatever, you know, some strat that he put stickers on or whatever. But I just remember him bringing it over and like, just being like, oh my God, like that's what a real guitar looks like. Like what <laughs> piece of shit for that I can't do anything with. It was just like so iconic and it just represented so much. And then um, I remember getting 5150. And I think that's probably about the time that Keith and I connected and that became like yeah. the common like I because thread. I was thinking the same thing because I think it was like 86, right? When when 5150 just came out with Sammy. And like I knew Van Halen because it was just everywhere, right? Like growing up in Northeast Ohio, it was if you went to the fair, all the rides were playing Van Halen, and you know, yeah. Yeah. I had the co- the little Coke mirror with the- a Van Halen logo on it. I probably still have that in the closet somewhere. Right. I mean, you know, obviously, 1984 had some pretty iconic videos and stuff. So, like, but but 5150 was the first tape that I bought, and then I bought. Uh, 1984 right after it and then i think within weeks i had managed to go back and buy the entire catalog up until that point so um, yeah to to to, uh your question to him about like the most emotional i got on through this whole thing i think it was like immediately as it happened like i texted keith within a second and he and i were going back and forth and just kind of like quickly tracing like oh my god our whole relationship is based on this guy (laughs) like this is crazy like we would have never not only did we meet, but then I think the thing we actually did together was a, a talent show yeah. where I believe I played Eddie and were you Sammy? And we did I, I, we, maybe I don't know something. if we drew straws on that because I think it was there was definitely an argument about who had to who was gonna play Eddie, but you, I think you you were pretty set on it from the start. <laughs> yeah. So like that was one path. And then the second path was just like, you know, I took a minute and was just I couldn't listen to any of the music for a while until like I got into this record um, to review this, but I just started thinking about that. The thrill of the hunt of like, once I got 5150 and then Keith and I connected and I really started getting into music again. And like, they were obviously the, the main band I knew other than kiss. I would just like, save up my money for mowing lawns and I, I could afford like one cassette maybe every week or every couple weeks. And I would just go to the uh, Midway Mall and just go through the old Van Halen albums. I didn't know any of them. I mean, I maybe had heard some stuff off the first record, you know, you really got me or something. And I would just like randomly pick one. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't know. This one looks pretty good. So I think I got Van Halen too next because the album cover looks similar to the first one. And sort of just worked my way through that. And just the memories of like, holding those cassettes and just sitting for hours and hours, just listening to the, to the one cassette over and over and over again. And like, I don't know, just experiencing that was just, I think to your point, Billy, it was like just one of those last times where it's just like pure joy. You're just like in another world. (laughs) I'm with you, man. You'd unfold it and just lay there. And like, I would read over and over again and, you know, like I knew who Don Landy and Ted Templeman were like, just like, they were like, 
long lost uncles to me because I saw their names. <laughs> so and like, if I'd see that when I'd see that Warner Brothers WB anywhere else, I thought it meant right. that something Van Halen was happening. Like yeah. it, it, it would pop yeah. up at the, the front of the movie and I'd be like, is this a Van Halen movie? What the hell is this? And like, because it, it was just an extension of us and it, all their, all their records or all the cassettes were on a cream colored uh, mm-hmm. cassette. Um, because a lot of them were a brighter white or like that clear. Um, and, but they, you know, just I, like, even their, their cassettes had a different font type. Like it, 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 it just, and the thing was, is and this is why um, I think I, I've still defended them pretty hard is that, you know, there, there was also a mystique about Van Halen. Um, you know, the in 1984 had a lot of al- or uh, videos or whatever. And then, but post-1984, the only thing you really saw from Van Halen was when they were like publicly feuding with whoever the singer was in, at the time, right? Yeah. But they, you never knew anything about them. I remember I, I, I joined the Inside Fan Club, right? I paid like, and yeah, I was, I mean, I used to pick up sticks and Mrs. Wick's yard, two bucks a week. And I just slowly accumulate one, grab a cassette, or my buddies, my, my buddy Michael Cunningham, his dad had a vinyl collection with Ridiculous. And, you know, I'd be like, hey, Mr. Cunningham, I'd, I'd buy the Maxell tapes for four bucks, you know, and I'd be like, I want, the, you know, Van Halen 1 and 2, I want the police records, and he'd, and he'd dub them for me. So that's, that does the other way I'd get stuff. But um, just, like, there was a mystique about them, because you, you didn't know much. And I joined that fan club, and there was, there was nothing in there. Like, it was just, like, you know, pictures that I'd seen in, but they weren't in those guitar mags that often. They weren't in like, because they were hard, they weren't part of the hair metal thing that was very public and very, um, and, but they also weren't in like Rolling Stone or Spin or anything. They were in this weird place where like only people that were eight or 10 years older than me had access to, right? And uh, so we were in this weird spot and, and not knowing anything, I think I built up because I was telling my, six-year-old who I talk to because I don't get to talk to any, many, many other people these days, but I'm like, <laughs> the, you know, growing up in, in, I grew up in Youngstown and fair warning sounds like Youngstown feels this post-industrial wasteland, but it, Van, the other records, I didn't know where these guys were from or what they were doing, but it sounded like a real good time. And, it, it, and like, <laughs> you know, Three of the first five records, four of the first six records are they're summer records. They, it sounds like summer, and it it warms your heart. And it sounds like these guys are having a great time. And the you know it's fun. Sometimes it's angry, but for the most part, it's like it it took me to a place that, like this weird ideal place that I don't even know what it was, but it just took me there. And it still it still does. And that that's the thing. It's like you know if if you're wherever you're driving or whatever, it, it hits you, and you're like, damn it, this riff. And, it, it, and, you know, the harem, like when I hear about it later, when they, that part leaving the, the, the guitar solo into that like bridge part where you can try me at home. When he, when Dave hits that home, like to this day, all the hair, arms, legs just stands up and it doesn't matter how many times I hear it. And it's impossible to explain why it does that. I wish I could, I, I wish I could like manufacture whatever it is that gets into our, our chemical ba- balances and makes that happen because we could make a lot of money. But uh, it's, it's, there's just something about it. It's the whole, the whole package. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I think the, there's a, there was a magic there and somehow though, even though they had a very unusual and in, in a lot of ways career, like there was something about this 
break between the two versions of the band that created, at least when I came in, like this mystique of the Dave era that you didn't know a lot about. There was no videos of it. There was no, I mean, we didn't have YouTube, right? I didn't see any bootlegs. It was all in my head. Like, so all you had was the album covers, maybe a couple pictures from some magazines and your imagination, right? And so like, just well, going back through all those albums and every, it was like, every album was like, wow, this album's amazing. And you would get the next cassette and put it in. You're like, I'm sure this one's going to suck. And you're like, holy shit, this album's amazing. And you put the next one and you're like, what the fuck? These are all yeah, like, amazing. Their warning, like, is actually, you know, was kind of a good entry point to the Roth era for me because there was that live video from, I think it was from the Hollywood Bowl that they showed on Headbangers Ball or whatever. It's, MTV uh, show. it's uh, Oh, Oakland Coliseum. It's Oakland like Coliseum. the holy, yeah, it's the holy grail. Of, yeah, but it's yeah. three songs. Yeah. And like to me, that's what anytime I heard Van Roth Van Halen in my mind, it was Dave shirtless jumping off a drum set and there yeah. being a million speakers everywhere. And it, it just all that stuff looked like that in my head it, when I would it, hear it because that was the only, the only visual I had to put to it. At the beginning of Unchained video in that Oakland show, he's on the drum rise and he's he's standing. And he's like, "Everybody up!" And it's like a rock army's coming. It's like in right. you know in 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 war movies or like Braveheart. It's like, "Oh shit, here they come!" And and but they, and that's how they come out of the gates. And it's just, yeah. And I, for me, that ended up actually leaving me a little bit disappointed when I saw Van Halen with Van Hagar the first time because. I remember seeing the all the Oakland Coliseum shows and Live Without a Net. Like I'm not I'm not here to piss on Sammy. Live, Live Without a Net, they're hanging from rafters. Uh, they're jumping like it's like everything's exploding. They're going crazy. I've never seen it. Like it's. Um, we should probably actually start talking about this record that we're yeah. here to actually talk about. A little bit of information for people who maybe are not um, the biggest Van Halen fans. You're gonna you're gonna learn stuff now this album came out in april of 1981 april 29th actually it was recorded at sunset sunset sound in los angeles between march and april of 1981 it took 12 days and it cost forty thousand dollars to record it it was with um don landy and and ted templeman as as mentioned and um after this there would be diver down which was collection of covers and um some other songs but the next i guess full record 1984 would actually be the first record recorded at um the 5150 studio that uh because of this record eddie wanted more control over the recording process and that uh Caused him to build his own studio. Well, it's, it's, Eddie it's almost like, quit, the, quit the band over this record. Yeah, yeah. Well, this this record is very well. Fair warning is very much Ed's dark record. But when they made Diver Down, like they did a cover of Pretty Woman because it was supposed to be like they were going to make a cover of Pretty Woman, and then they were going to go to the studio and finally make the record that that that, that Eddie wanted to make. Um, take their time because up to this point they were making records in a week or two you know in between tours and they were like in a four-year cycle and ed wanted to take a break and really spend some time uh, putting some more thought in, instead of just you know playing live uh to tape or whatever and um but pretty woman blew up and warner said we want a full record right now 
And then like Ted Templeman took that crazy Moog synth thing that Eddie wrote and made it the beginning of Dancing in the Streets. And Ed was pissed that they used that for a, a cover song. And uh, then they did the Us Festival, which was a big drunken disaster. And uh, so then that's why he had built a studio. So it was like, he loved Fair Warning, I guess. Again, it was dark, but like it's, yeah, it all starts to unravel here. And it, based on the Van Halen Rising book by Greg Renoff, the first four records were essentially, not all of them, not every song, but a lot of those songs were written before the first record even came out. Like they had built up a collection of originals along with the covers that they were doing in the mid seventies as a California party band, essentially. And that's why you have four albums in succession so quick that come out with so much well honed material. That's, that sounds like a band, like, you know, just blazing out of the gate. Um, And this is, I don't know if this is the last record of that collection of songs. I don't know if there was stuff I, I that made the it. The way I understood it, it was the first one where they they didn't have all a lot of the songs pre written because Eddie was kind of doing the whole thing where he was sneaking into the studio with um with Don with Don Landy and they were doing tracks at like four or five in the morning. Yeah, because I think they didn't have stuff written. I want to say some of the tracks. Maybe it was hear about it later or. So this is love are a little bit older songs, but I, I could be entirely wrong about that because I, I remember hearing a bootleg back when I collected um, CDR bootlegs from Mad Hatter Music in, in Bowling Green um, that yeah. had it was like a live recording of Van Halen from the late 70s. And there was a song on there that I didn't recognize the title, but it was the riff for a song that's on one of the records and they had inverted the verse and the chorus sections. So the chorus um, live was the verse section. And I want to say that was either hear about it later or, or it could have been um, one of the records from one of the earlier records, but it's, it's in that vein. Um, interestingly, when this album came out, what? I was just going to say the bridge, the bridge riff in mean street is from she's the woman, the original demo. Yes. Yeah. Yep. But um, just in general, like I, they were a band that like, or Eddie as an artist, like he would let things just develop naturally and they would just play stuff and play stuff and play stuff. And like, I mean, he's notorious for this, right? He's not going to release it until it's the way he wants it. So like, there's a lot of material that goes way back. Like right now was written during the 1984 sessions. Yeah. It was written before jump. Yeah. So like, he's always done that. Um, I think, a different kind of truth gets a bad rap because maybe there was so much time, but what they did for that record was not, not typical of them. I mean, they, they did that a lot. Like he would just let stuff sit, he would record it and then he would go back to it and they would just keep working on it or he'd pluck parts out that he liked and make new songs out of them. Like that's just the way that they sort of worked. Um, Rolling Stone gave this album two and a half out of five stars. Um, so there, you know, what, that what they thought Robert what Cousteau that? gave it a B minus when it came out, which was probably the, the best rating he had given up to that point. Right? I think he'd because given like, them B's. Yeah, I think. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was, he, he enjoyed, um, you know, I think if anything, Eddie's guitar playing won people like him over because I read an inter- or a, something where 
you know, somebody that you didn't expect to like Eddie Van Halen said he's on the level of like a Charlie Parker. Like he reinvented the instrument in a way that nobody has ever done before. And it was not yeah. somebody I expected to like say that. Um, I want to say it was like some country artist that I, I'm not remembering their name, but you know, he's a, as important to rock and roll as, as Charlie Parker is to jazz or what have you. So let's get into this record. Um, it opens up with Mean Street, but it also opens up with that um, callback a little bit to Eruption with the finger tapping. And um, has anybody ever tried to play that? <laughs> no. No. It's like finger tapping and harmonics and like, I don't even know. Well, like, he's doing it on the bass notes, right? It's like he's not even doing it on the higher notes. Yeah, I, I love it, that you can you can also like you can hear his fingers hitting the strings like it's not yeah, su- like yeah. super overdriven. It's Very like percussive, really, like percussive, yeah. gritty he, kind of feel. He's actually, and I think he's playing chords with both hands because he hits two or three fingers when he's tapping with the right hand. So it's like it, it is. It's like slappy, um, and it you know, and it's but it's not about the flash. It's about like the the execution and like there's it's so it is mean it's i mean it sounds mean and so it's it's such a amazing setup for the rest of the record which is just you know like i said dark it's it's funny too because he does this incredibly technically awesome tapping thing and then then when he goes into the mean street riff that comes yeah starts the song i mean like it yeah it's it's a little bit like uh I mean, how the first record has that car horn that p- pulls you in. It's mm-hmm. the same kind of effect where it's, it like sucks you into the record and then it creates like this atmosphere between the two parts. You're like, oh shit, we're in an alley. I mean, it's going to get on. We're like, it's going down. Like, yeah, this is, this is dirty. And Meat Street uh, is an interesting song to me for two reasons. One, because of that rhythm, which is very funky. shuffle for sure yeah and then also the lyrical content which they sort of started or david lee ross sort of started to dip into these darker lyrical um ideas on women and children first you know Mm -hmm. van halen 2 is such a party record that you were mentioning about sound of the summer like that sounds like you're at the beach um, I mean, dance the night away. Yeah. And, and women in love, like those, those are girls. Just, yeah. 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 And I read that David Lee Roth, um, before this record traveled a little bit and he, he went to some countries and saw some very economically depressed areas of the world and came back mm-hmm. motivated to write from that angle. And I've thought about that and, and his lyrical approach, not only on this record, but he's, often taking the the point of view of the underdog and the working class even up to a different kind of truth i mean you think about the song tattoo which is not one of my favorite van halen songs but he mentions union workers in the third verse of that song uncle gary had a cold tattoo yeah 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 yeah. so even though he was basically this rich kid from you know was the son of a doctor and lived in a mansion and and in california he definitely did not let that in terms of his lyrical approach go to his head. You know, you think about a lot of bands it, of 
that era, they were writing about aspirational lyrics as opposed to, or, or, you know, love and hate type lyrics. And yeah. he's doing a much more, um, he's taking a much more different approach. It, it's the, it's the, um, it's the glass half full, or it's the, it's the positive way to look at like pop, populism, right? It's the whole notion that like, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm writing on behalf of the, like, the, the downtrodden or whatever. And it's, but it's not because I want to destroy everybody else that's in my way or and like that. It's just, there's angst and anxiety and probably a little bit of guilt, uh, you know, mm-hmm. but you hear interviews with Dave and one of the things he's most proudest of, uh, or he's proudest of from his youth is that, you know, like he chose to go to the integrated schools in, in Southern California. So he was kind of bust out of the, the nice neighborhood in Pasadena. So he could experience more things. And he was a, he was a world traveler, you know, like, you know, the, my favorite story about Dave being uh, out, out, out of, uh, off the grid or whatever is, you know, that us festival in, in 1983, um, biggest concert in the world. They, they had a million dollars on the table for Van Halen to headline it and no one could find Dave. He was like in the, you know, he was in South America and like in a, in the jungle on a boat and like came to port and they were like, Dave, we got a million dollar show. You need to get home. And, you know, like somebody they had to give him a telegram. And so that like, he was always taking in the world, um, you know. And I think the, uh, you know, the kind of the image you guys were all painting here for the first track is oddly rep- well represented in the album art which is not a typical rock album art and nor is it typical for van halen like it stands out like a sore thumb in terms of like mm-hmm. it doesn't have the van halen logo it's mostly brown um it's oddly um pixelated um but it's it, it looks it's violent it's dark it's it kind of looks like an apartment complex from hell <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and when you look like at the a, original painting they pulled it from it's like oh my god that's twisted like um but yeah, it very like much the, is what this album sounds like yeah it's like uh richard scary uh but does blair witch or something like it's some weird twist on uh, the, that apartment thing's perfect yep. yeah well and the the darker element of this album bleeds into the next song dirty movies which uh is essentially i'm i'm reading from the lyrics uh, about the, the prom queen becoming the porn queen. Um, and there's some interesting commentary about, you know, uh, they don't know what she does back home. They don't see her movies back home. Cause she's a small town girl and, and that kind of stuff. And I think about this in, in terms of, it's strange to me to think about that. This only came out in 1980. Uh, one like for some reason I think oh all Van Halen records came out like in the eighties in the mid eighties for some reason like that they just seem like that era but this came out in eighty one and I think about in terms of that storyline about oddly enough not California which is what Van Halen is associated with but New York City and New York City had just gone through this depression you know Times Square was known for its like for its uh adult theaters and and it had this very bad reputation as being dangerous in the, in the late seventies and be going broke famously in um, before Koch became mayor. And um, it's, it's almost like he's tapping into that paranoia of, of that late seventies, early eighties, small town, you know, 
fear of the big big city corrupting the youth that leave their cities and um but it paired with again like them musically that song i don't just it's got this shuffle it's got this it's got this groove to it that is not like i think of the swing when it comes to van halen i don't think of the the shuffle in the same way i don't know about you guys but well i mean when you listen to them they're so unique in their feel and it i I, it has to have come from playing with their dad like Mm -hmm. playing jazz and like you know be able to do the rhythm that like having the sense of rhythm that obviously Alec Al has, but Eddie has it. Like they're able to groove. They can play soul. You can tell they spent years and years and years as a cover band yeah. too, right? They can pull off all of those genres of music that are not straight up rock, you know, and do it so easily. I mean, some of these tunes you can hear them playing on other you know, you can imagine them in your head being playing on other instruments and sounding like, you know, swing songs, you know. So the that's their secret ingredient i mean other than ed's technical ability it's like this rhythmic sense that is so sophisticated mm-hmm. unlike probably any other rock band i mean they even when they are driving and on the floor there's still like this weird groove to it that is like nearly impossible for any other band to do um and i think just you can tell they just put the shit out of this stuff too like al and Michael and Anthony are just so tight. And then Ed has just such a great sense of um, rhythm. But yeah, you can just, you get all of this movement in there, which is still heavy, heavy as hell, you know, which is so unique. To hear the full episode, join the Dig Me Out Union at Patreon by visiting dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com.